Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman. This is episode 111 of the podcast, which talks to academic staff and students about their work. There's loads in the back catalogue, so if you're new to this, do check it out. My guest this week is Dr. Daniel Birdsey, Deputy Head of School for Research in the School of Sport and Service Management. Dan's research focuses on the sociological and geographical analyses of ethnicity and popular culture, and his latest monograph, Racism and English Football for Club and Country, has just been released. Thanks for coming on, Dan. There's lots to get stuck into about football and racism, but let's just get to know you a little bit better first. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your work at the university? Yeah, thanks, Richard. Um, really appreciate the invitation to, to join the, the podcast today. I joined the university in 2004, um, where I, I joined what was then known as Chelsea School, based out in, in Eastbourne. And I joined there as, as a lecturer teaching on the, the sports studies and uh, sport management programmes. And over those um, 16 years, I've, I've now progressed. So I'm now, um, as you said in your introduction, the deputy head of school. In, in the School of Sport and Service Management with responsibility for research and enterprise. And my research over, over that time focuses on, as you say, you know, the sociological and um, cultural geographical uh, analyses of, of, of race and racism as, as manifest in, in popular cultural spheres. A lot of that has been around um, sport, primarily, um, and within that, a, a predominant focus on, on football. But I've also spent quite a lot of time writing about the English seaside and how that's um, a kind of repository of, of um, notions of, of whiteness and exclusion and, and, and racism. So there's, um, you know, the overarching, the overarching sort of um, theme is, is racism and popular culture. Uh, and within that, two topics very close to my to my personal life as well as my professional one, football yeah. uh, and the seaside. Sure. Uh, where does the um, that interest come from? Yeah, um, I mean that's a really, really important um, sort of frame, or, or the way I, I try and talk about my research, is that my own personal anti-racist politics are derived in, in many ways, not not from the books I've read or or, or engaging with the with the with the work of sort of um, leading thinkers on the topic that that came afterwards my my interest in, in these topics the anti-racist politics very much sort of generate from um you know the, the ground up if that makes sense um i try and make that 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 clear in, in in what i write that my interest in whether that be football or or the seaside are, are generated from my experiences in those those cultural spheres and as I say in this, um, you know, this, this, this latest book on, on racism and football, it is written as, uh, as an academic and, you know, hopefully there's a, enough in there to, to sort of interest fellow sociologists and, and students of that topic. But it's also very much written from experiences as, as a fan um, and a participant in, in football. Um, you know, I'm very much a believer in, in what C. Wright Mills dubbed the sociological imagination where we combine not only you know our, our sort of um, intellectual understanding from and, and theoretical framing but with our personal experiences and our our personal biographies um, so my point about you know coming to uh where I, you know where my sort of interest developed from i've kind of retrospectively you know been interested in in the ideas and the sociological framing 
of, of these of these cultural phenomena but it's very much within you know, the lived experience of of someone who grew up loving football and loved going when well, I was born at the seaside and loved being at the seaside that really generated um, my interest because it wasn't long you know in, in experiencing those things both football and experiencing seaside cultures that I started to realize that these things weren't accessible for all. And there were, you know, the kind of um, inequities and exclusions, which, uh, you know, we recognize in other areas of life, were also very present in these, in these areas of popular culture, which I was enjoying. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's get into the book and, and talk about English football and racism. Um, loads to talk about. I think we'll start with some fan culture. And I think it kind of comes back to what we've just been talking about, about sort of experiences that you sort of witness in football um issues in the stands and i think anyone who's been to a football match can probably remember at least one incident where a spectator around you may have said something racist um and now it's a lot easier to report so you don't experience it maybe as much because people can be caught easier but it, it feels like it has crept in a little bit more in recent years for example we saw um raheem sterling being racially abused at Chelsea a couple of years ago, um, fans banned for life and that. When we see that, do you think it's sort of, that's reflecting society in a way? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, what you say there about experiences of, of you know, we've all been to, um, you know, games and, and, and witnessed those racist um, um, episodes, you know, is it, a really sad um, um, kind of, um, you know, foot, well, it's more than a footnote. It's 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 been a central um, sort of part of, of the of the canvas of my life of, of supporting football. You know, I, I remember hearing and seeing these things in the eighties and nineties, and I still see them now. You know, that was um, um, you know a, a big kind of um, you know thing I, I talk about in the book is 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 recognizing that these things haven't drifted away. Um, you know, they didn't go away. They've been here all, here all along. And, you know, that, that's something which is obviously very, very much known by, by those individuals who experience, you know, who, who, are, on the, who are on the end of those um, discriminatory comments. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's you know, it, it is um, appropriate at, at one level to think about how football reflects society. But I would and I'm working through a lot of this with my students at the moment, mm -hmm. is to think about that actually football's more than a reflection of society. You know, football is part of society. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite common knowledge to think about sport as a sort of microcosm of society, but that sometimes gives sport almost a sort of free pass that it's a kind of innocent um, receptacle by which um, wider issues of race and racism um, are sort of forced forced into but that's but that is a common a common way of, of thinking about it i mean with the issues in the last couple of years that's been a very common um way of thinking and talking about racism in football from media pundits um from ex-players that racism is a social problem and it kind of pops out in in football in, in that kind of environment now i think it's important to say that you know there's certainly evidence that football does reproduce broader forms of societal racism. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, we saw that post 9-11 where there was a real upsurge in over Islamophobic um, discrimination on, on the terraces in football. And 
as Gary Neville, you know, the Sky Sports pundit, who sort of emerged as a as a sort of a champion for social justice from from sort of nowhere, was was saying, I think, um, earlier this year. Yeah, there's no doubt that the, the, the Brexit culture or you know the Brexit mechanisms and the discriminatory mechanisms of of that are are reproduced in in football. And I would you know I would add that the wider um, discriminatory immigration climate around the hostile environment is also very very present um, within that but I would also say that we there's a danger in thinking that ideas of, of racism uh, come from society into football and and only working in that direction from society into football because actually football is generative of its own problematic racist practices and and racist meanings and racist ways of, of thinking um, and and talking as well and it's so it's really important that we recognize both that society does influence football but also what happens in football can also have meanings and repercussions and outcomes which then generate into the wider society and if we ignore the latter um, to an extent we, we kind of let football off the hook and and it allows people in football to perhaps argue that well kind of you know it's simply a cultural realm or an industry which is reproduced in wider, wider um, um, social relations. Of course it is, but we also must hold football account and recognise football's own responsibility um, and, and, and contribution to this. Well, with that in mind, has enough been done really? Because um, there's often the question about whether football is institutionally racist. And I recently did an interview for another podcast with Chris Ramsey, the technical director at QPR, former Brighton defender. He believes it is. He... He believes that a lot of the things that are being spoken about are mostly lip service only. And when he looks back really about what has really been achieved over the past few decades, he doesn't really think enough's been done. So do you think that is the case? Yeah, I'd be, you know, I'd be absolutely in agreement with that. that, that that's a sort of um, the common, well, I would like to think the common feature of my, of my scholarship over the last uh, you know, 20 years, if I include my my PhD studies on this, which has been a very um, critical uh, appraisal of what happens in football and the inadequate response by by football's um, authorities, governing bodies, clubs, etc., etc., to that. I, I think the, I mean, the term institutional racism has a um, a kind of um, you know people are aware of that term post post McPherson inquiry. And I think it has some some benefits, but I, I would probably prefer to use terms which are, are more common within the, the sociological literature um, of perhaps systemic racism and, and or structural racism. I think they're important because they help us to understand that it's not just in the institutions where, where racism exists, and of course it does exist in those institutions, but it also exists in the um, the processes and the procedures and the actions, you know, it, it is what it says, it's in the structures and the systems, whether that be about um, recruitment of players, whether that be about um, selection of, of coaching staff, whether that be um, in kind of sociological ideas of, of belonging and feeling included in the, in the stadium. So I think um, I would tend to use uh, or employ ideas of structural and or systemic racism and in doing that yes i would say that 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 characterizes what what what, what football um, unfortunately is yeah and 
Yeah, and I think, you know, we recently saw, we were talking about structures in football. We recently saw, obviously, that the chairman of the FA, Greg Clark, he had to resign for using some pretty archaic comments in when speaking to MPs. And now, I don't really think there's a general feeling that people are actually accusing Greg Clark of being racist, but certainly a lack of understanding and education on what is and isn't acceptable to say and treat people as well. So when the person at the top of the game in this country is saying those things, what does that say about the organization of football and the problems that have to be sorted? Yeah, I mean, I, I heard a really um, interesting, uh, I think it was a caller on, on Five Live who had sort of juxtaposed what, you know, what Greg Clark had said to someone else um, making a, a similar comment. And they, and they came to the conclusion, quite rightly, that when you're the head of the Football Association, you, you cannot make these mistakes. You, know, you, you cannot do this. And there's no room for, there's no room for error. Um, and it's to have, uh, you used the term archaic, which I think is absolutely, absolutely an, an appropriate description. To have someone who is the, you know, the head of a um, you know, huge organisation, which you know, is, is relatively diverse in its, in its participant base, Mm. Um, you know that that's absolutely not acceptable. Not acceptable for for someone to be to be speaking in that in that language. You know, and let's not forget it wasn't it wasn't one one slip. It was, you know, I think three or four comments which were um, racist, homophobic, um, sexist in in their in their um, articulation and and content. But you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't see this as just a one-off. You know, Greg Clark, his record hasn't been hasn't been great for, for quite a while. You know, he was um, um, you know, heavily involved as the, as the head of the FA in the complaint which Eniola Aluko made about her racist treatment um, by the manager Mark Sampson in the England women's setup and, and, the, and um, the fellow coaches. And let's not forget that, that was a complaint which was um, the FA tried to bury, they tried to dismiss it, they tried to present Aluko as... Um, you know, kind of the the the, the risky uh, the risky black woman who um, you know was, was rocking the boat and didn't know her place and 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 wasn't um, you know was 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 making an in their eyes an illegitimate complaint um, and you know he his his um, involvement in that um, both the procedure and um, you know the actual department for culture media and sport inquiry was appalling you know and and um, Aluko was was rightly you know her, her her complaint was upheld. So this is there's a yeah, there's a backstory here, um, but I think it's also important to think that Greg Clark isn't isn't alone. Um, there's you know, say so there's not one just one Greg Clark. There are lots of people um, uh, like this at the higher levels of um, uh, British sport. Uh, there's an article in the Telegraph, a really nice infographic in the summer which I use with my students, which shows that the, the um, people in power in British sports governing bodies um, are nearly exclusively white and nearly exclusively male. And this is you know, the, what, what Chris Grant, who's a really um, um, uh, very high ranking, influential um, black sports administrator was saying in the summer, this is in many ways the, the problem of, of our times. Of course, there are other problems in, in sport, but it's what, professional players are talking about. You know, we've had people like Romelu Lukaku, um, Vincent Company, talking about 
what they see as a problem is that people in positions of power are simply not aware of what it's like to be a black footballer, um, male, male or female. And they're not arguing that, you know, it's impossible to know that, you know, they're, they're, of course, one can be um, empathetic and, and supportive if you're not part of, um, you know, a group who are racially abused. And that's what I try and do in my research. You know, I'm a white academic. I, I don't experience racism. You know, I, I accrue the privileges of, of, of whiteness, but I try and, you know, um, act as an ally and, and, and as a, you know, as a scholar of racism. But this is what these, these players were saying. You know, there's people in the highest positions of sports governance who are, you know, not aware, to put it mildly, ignorant perhaps of, of the lived experience of, of being a sports person of colour. How important is it then that the FA gets the next appointment right? Well, it's absolutely critical. It's absolutely critical. Um, I mean, I, I, I keep referring to, to what I do with my students because hopefully it comes across that, you know, this is obviously the other part of my job, which I love, love just as much. And it's so nice to be able to talk about your own research and your current ideas with your, with your student cohort. And I've been talking to my third year class on um, uh, um, race, racism in sport and popular culture module and talking about how we weigh up the significance of 2020, which, you know, in, in my years of, of studying racism, you know, is undoubtedly perhaps the most important year in my lifetime in, in, in terms of um, those sorts of developments, but also putting that in a broader historical context and understanding, you know, we've had other important years, you know, 1968 or, 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 or what have you. Um, and, you know, thinking, but I think it is a, it's a critical time. It's an opportunity um, to uh, appoint someone who is forward thinking, is aware of the, you know, the issues. But I would also want to suggest that, that it goes beyond Clark um, or whoever um, is promoted in to the uh, position of, of the head of the FA, because as, as critical race theorists would suggest, you know, reflecting on, for example, the, the appointment of, of President Obama, you can have powerful people, you know, in that instance, uh, you know, a, a black man in powerful positions, but it doesn't necessarily um, change every element of that society or, or that structure or, or that, that industry. Um, so absolutely the appointment of the head of the FA, it's, it's perhaps the most important decision the FA are gonna make in, you know, in, in, this, in this era, but it doesn't stop with the appointment of the, of the chair. You know, it, it's, it's about the broader um, cultural values of the, of the institution. Sure. And, uh, and, yeah, and then hopefully it will filter down to the game because you look at the, the top level of football for the opportunities for black coaches, especially in management. That looks to be really difficult. I mean, how long have we been having this conversation? Um, there are so few black coaches in prominent roles. You can count them on, I don't know, two hands in management. You've got QPRs mentioned just now. They've got Les Ferdinand and Chris Ramsey in big positions. Um, Chris Hutton's at Nottingham Forest, Nuno Espirito Santo at Wolves, and there really are just a few others. Does it fit into that same conversation then about the game being like, with systemic racism? And, and is that basically only those roots being blocked only by a very actually small minority and the people who are running the game who aren't giving them opportunities, whereas actually there's quite there's a huge desire to get more diversity in the game in general. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that you've um, 
you, you mentioned the issues around around coaches and managers. So I, likewise with the you know the governance and, and the leadership, I think it's a really really um, you know fundamental sort of um, pivot point for um, where where football goes football goes next. And it's interesting because the football industry as a, as a whole, I'm talking quite broad brushstrokes here, has often been, it, it's often sort of um, utilised what we might call a, a, um, you know, particular mechanisms of, of denial, that denying that there's you know, racism in football. And one of the ways in which football and associated politicians or the media have sought to um, deny uh, the issue of racism is to say, well, look at look at the um, yeah percentage of, of 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 black footballers. Look at the percentage of people working in, in in the game. But when you break that down, and then you analyze football in terms of its different sort of realms and levels, you know you soon find that there are very sort of few play or, or few elements of professional football where where people of color are employed. One of those, most obviously, is as players, and the other is as um, stewards, match stewards, um, and as people working in the service sector, providing refreshments in um, in professional football stadia. And you know, we can see that, that you now these are quite Im embedded colonial sort of um, limited roles and stereotypes that it's the, the black folk that entertain and serve you know, the, the white customers, if you like. Um, so there's a real unevenness in, in, in sort of inclusion throughout football. And that helps us to understand this issue around um, coaches and managers, because again, the kind of mechanisms of denial will say, well, it can't be about racism because there are so many players. And that's sort of, you know, a teachable moment and work through with students to say, well, actually, this is how racism works. Racism can be sort of inconsistent. It can pick different um, elements, different times. Uh, racism works by allowing or facilitating the inclusion of perhaps one racialized community and not the other. But it also can work by including um, a particular minority ethnic community in one aspect of a of an industry or profession and and not others so we can see that uh players you know and, and for example african caribbeans have historically been racialized as you know in inverted commas natural sports people who make good footballers but the same sort of racist logic has racialized um african caribbeans as not having the kind of um cerebral or, or leadership qualities um which people would, would see to be um, um, required to, to to manage a football club. So absolutely, I, I think the you know the exclusion of 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 coaches of colour um, in the men's and women's game, you know the, the, the women's game, the representation is even lower, um, is absolutely part of that of that systemic systemic problem I allude to. Yeah, um, the Black Lives Matter movement that was well marked in football, and as we record this, players are continuing to take a knee before kickoff. But what's the next step? Because is it going to become so normalised that the real reason for it to raise awareness just starts to get lost? It maybe starts to become a bit more of a routine. I think when this came in, there was a bit of criticism from some players. I'd like to think it might be someone like Andre Gray, an interview that I read, 
um, that taking a knee or wearing a t-shirt to highlight a campaign, for example, for Kick It Out, isn't really enough. It's a bit of a box ticking exercise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of debate around the sort of wearing of, of, of t-shirts um, in, in um, uh, you know, in, in the anti-racist week of action. And, um, you know, the last five years ago, we've seen a lot of high profile players, black and white, saying that we're, we're not wearing the t-shirts. Um, I mean, that's partly related to the, um, the episode between um, Anton Ferdinand and, and John Terry, which um, it led to um, Anton's brother Rio and others saying, you know, we, we didn't feel that that, that organisation was, was sufficiently supportive. But yeah, it, it's, it's a really important um, debate to have. And, you know, I was really, really interested um, in Les Ferdinand's comments recently that he, he was um, someone in particular who was saying that he felt that the, um, the, the, the taking of the knee at the start of the game is sort of losing its power. It kind of becomes part of the, 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 um, the institution of, of, of starting a football match as much as the fair play handshake and the, um, and the playing of the kind of Premier League, Premier League anthem. Um, but I think, you know, and again, this is what I would try and work through with my students is that it's, it's, these things are never an either or trying to get away from what we you know, call binary thinking that it's either a good thing or it's a, it's, it's, it's a bad thing. You know, I'm, I'm someone who's critical of um, the way in, in which um, sort of dominant institutions, particularly in football, um, could often articulate or, or demonstrate a form of, of multiculturalism um, strokes sort of diversity rhetoric, which is very superficial. It can be reinforcing stereotypes. It's kind of, um, for the benefit of, 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 of themselves. Um, and this again, you know, this is what critical race theorists would, would argue is, a, is an example of what they call interest convergence, where things which can seem to be uh, forms of progress for communities of color are only permitted when they actually benefit the white institution or the white elites uh, as well. And we're seeing that definitely the, the, um, um, the, 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 the anti-racist gestures um, in in football are definitely you know providing good sort of um, you know corporate image for the Premier League you know even though they've now replaced the Black Lives Matter symbol on the jerseys with that quite sort of um, anodyne no room for racism but you know alongside that sort of critical thinking I also think about what that means you know when I sat down in June and watched that first game after the restart which was Aston Villa against Sheffield United and on the, on the television, of course, and um, saw the players do that. You know, that was a sort of hairs on the back of the neck yeah. moment. You think about what's happened in the US and the absolute vitriol, which has been um, meted out to Colin Kaepernick and others for, for doing this, to see 22 players and the officials do this. You know, it, it was that powerful moment. And, and I think about, you know, what, what it means to my, um, you know, I talk about this with, with my nephew, who's 10, and, you know, I didn't, when I was 10, this wasn't happening. Of course it wasn't. He's 10. Um, I think about who he, who he loves. And I'm going to give away who we both support now. You know, he loves Richarlison and he loves Dominic Calvert-Lewin and he loves Andre Gomez. And they're his heroes. You know, he's got them on his shirts. And to see those people doing that, you know, at the age of 10, you know, 
I think is incredibly powerful. So I'm critical in some ways of the kind of institutional um, uh, mechanisms by which anti-racism can become sort of superficial and corporate in, in, in professional sport. But I also want us to, to retain a sense that these things are significant. Yeah. They are powerful, not least on the younger generations. Yeah. Um, let's talk about football media treatment of black footballers. Um, Raheem Sterling's had a really tough time in recent years with some papers. And then um, they've sort of flipped the other way when then he'll be outspoken about racism in the game for praising him to talk, talk out about that kind of stuff. Um, and then the other side is that Marcus Rashford at the moment is, a, is the, the nation's darling with his incredible work on free meals and the pressure he's put on the government. Um, do you think black players of wealth in general, general are, are treated differently to white players in a similar situation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, 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 no doubt about it. Um, I write quite a lot about Sterling in, in, the, in, the, in the book um, in a number of senses. I mean, I think Sterling, again, has emerged as a really critically important spokesperson for the current generation of, of, of black footballers. If you'd asked me a couple of years ago, who, who might this key spokesperson be, and I'm just talking about the men's game for the time being, um, I, I wouldn't have said Sterling. I, I didn't think that he was the player who was going to do that. But, you know, he clearly has, and he's been a hugely important spokesperson and representative. It flipped, but it flipped, didn't been. it? It flipped when he, it was the point, wasn't it? That it was, the, it was a media story in the same, was it the same week or over a couple of weeks with different, completely different reactions to Tosin Adarabayo and Phil Foden buying a, a house for their mum. That was it, wasn't it? And that was the moment where he said, I think he used the phrase that it was fueling racism. That was the moment that, it really, that yeah. he really started to come to the fore with really pushing the, you know, his views, on, his, his views on, 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 on racism in the game. Yeah, it was incredible. And, you know, and that came in, 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 in an Instagram post. You know, that wasn't, that, that's another interesting, you know, the way in which players are using their own, own personal platforms. But yeah, Sterling's been, I mean, it, it's, it's a kind of perverse level and scope of the way in which Sterling is, is demonised. Because he's, he's demonised for... Um, at times seeming to be too kind of um, thrifty. You know, he, he gets demonised in the papers to shopping at Primark or going to Greg's Bakery. Easy Jet Flight, I think, was another one, wasn't it? Easy Jet Flight, exactly, yeah. Mm. Um, and he also gets hugely criticised for perceiving to being too sort of profligate with, with his funds. Um, and, you know, the, the whole thing around buying houses was... was um, was part of that and you know there's some wonderful um parts of of um uh sterling's charitable life you know he um um supported the funeral of a young crystal palace footballer Damari dawkins who, who died as a teenager he gave away a lot of free tickets to um um schools in his old school in in the borough of brent when manchester city were playing in the in the cup final last week or so we saw a very very similar uh sort of framing as what happened with um uh, Sterling and juxtaposed against Phil Foden and, and Tosin Adebario, um, where Rashford was, was um, reported to be buying some houses and the same kind of racist framing came out, you know, quite, quite soon after um, that happened. So it, it's the ways in which black footballers are spoken about and spoken to 
both in the media and um, um, in the social media, we must must also remember, is a way of of social control and a form of the kind of machinery of, of racism, which is saying to black footballers fundamentally, you know, in inverted commas, know your place, you know, play football, be good, win us games, but you know, don't don't start throwing your money around um, or, or things like that. And that's that's a you know that's an ingrained racial stereotype around which. Um, you know, um, has been levelled at, at black communities for a, for a long time. Dan, the, the, the book sounds really interesting. Um, we'll put all the links in the podcast description. Thanks so much for talking about it. Um, it'd be so much, we'd be really looking forward to getting stuck into that. Now, we, we end every podcast with some questions away from your work. It's just a bit of fun. So the first one is, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think the advice would simply be to my younger self would be appreciate all the trophies Everton are winning because they're not, they're not going to happen again for quite a while. <laughs> it could be changing soon. You play, play it's a lot better this season. Thank you, Richard. I, 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 I hope so. And it's going to be um, uh, uh, perhaps a, a real irony and a sad situation that we'll win something this season. And I, I won't be there to see it. But, um, <laughs> fingers crossed that things change and we, we get in the ground soon. And we yeah. get, get back to the safe society. Absolutely. Looking good. Looking more positive. If you could study any other course at Brighton, what would it be? Oh, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Cause I'm so, you know, so in awe of, you know, I've got so many great colleagues across the, um, across the institution. Um, who teach such interesting stuff. I think it would be, Probably something that maybe around some of the, the human geography or um, film studies or um, you know the elements of, of humanities that look at um, sort of you know um, American history thing, things like that. Mm -hmm. and, and as someone who studied sport as an undergraduate <laughs> and postgraduate, it, um, you know I don't, I don't want to um, underplay my own or, or um, you know kind of. Um, <laughs> Uh, talk talk down what, what what myself and my colleagues do in in our own department but no I would, I would love to do some of those other sort of humanities and, and social science things yeah great and um, can you pick a favorite place in Sussex this, I mean I love listening to the other podcasts you, you do on this and I'm always intrigued by um what people uh what people answer here now I, I was born in Brighton and I've, I've lived in Brighton all my life apart from uh, my time away at university so that's a very very challenging question um you know I, I live in brighton i would go quite specific and you know i grew up in patcham in in the north of brighton and um so it's probably places like you know the walk up to the chattery on the on the downs um stammer park um it's it's those places which have such fond memories for me as a, as a young person and i can enjoy those those outdoor spaces with family now so i would i would say those those, those parts of brighton yeah great um tell us something about yourself that a lot of people may not know? Ooh, um, yeah, I'm a, you know, I, I spend a lot of time writing about sport, but I'm, I'm just as much a music fan. I'm a huge music fan. And I particularly like uh, going to places which have significant um, sort of musical folklore or, or related to the music industry. And um, I'm very, very fortunate to be able to, to visit a number of, um, for me, really significant music studios. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've been to um, Motown in Detroit. Uh, I've been to Stax in, in Memphis. 
and I've been to um, Fame Studios in, in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And, you know, the great experiences for me, um, you know, the, the, the first two are quite, are quite touristy to go to those studios, but the, the latter, which is perhaps um, the, the least well-known, is Fame Studios in, in Muscle Shoals. And that's a, a very, very hands-on um, experience. Yeah, we were very lucky when we visited those studios that the Blind Boys of Alabama were recording at the time in the studio. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a musician, but I do try and play the guitar. Um, I was able to pick up and play Jimmy Johnson's guitar. Jimmy Johnson's probably not that well known, but you know he was part of part of the Swampers. And if you're listening to Aretha Franklin, um, Wilson Pickett, uh, Clarence Carter, you're hearing Jimmy Johnson's guitar on those records. Um, so yeah, I'm a huge music fan, and, and I love to um, go to those kind of places where the where the music was created, which which gives me so much happiness now. Mm. Great. And, and if you could invite three people to dinner, excluding family, past or present, who would they be and why? Yeah, well, I've, you know, I've given, a, given the game away a bit for those who, who, who don't know me that I'm an Everton season to get hold of. Everton's such an important part of my, of my life. So, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't say that about the, the question, what do people not know about you? Because anyone who's come within, you know, minutes of meeting me will, will know this. So, and if I was having dinner, I'm sure the conversation would move to football and and Everton quite quite quickly. Um, so I would invite three people um, who've played for, for Everton. I, I would firstly invite Cliff Marshall. Uh, Cliff was um, one of the first black footballers in, um, uh, in England in the early 70s. And he was um, the first locally born black footballer to play for, for the Everton men's team. He wasn't the first player of of, of colour to play for Everton. Um, Mike Trebilco played in the 60s, although Trebilco, you know, doesn't identify as a, as a multiracial person. Um, and there were some guest players from, from Chinese players in, earlier in the century. But, I'd, but Cliff was the first player to come, you know, from, from Liverpool, from Liverpool Lake neighbourhood in South Liverpool. Um, and I'd want to talk to him and, you know, hear his stories about um, that role. And then to, to bring it more up to date, I, I would like to invite uh, Valerie Govan, who is um, you know top player for the Ever Everton women's side. She's a, a decorated French international, um, born on the Pacific island of, of, of Reunion. And you know I'd really want to um, hear about her experiences as a as a as a woman um, representing Everton and as a, as a black woman in English football at what is um, really a, a very pivotal time for for the women's game. And the the last one would would be would be my hero, um, Big Nev Neville Southall. Uh, you know, ne Nev was my was my hero um, growing up. Um, you know, he was the best goalkeeper in the world. He was incredible, um, and he was my my sort of hero um, as a player. But he was also very significant in supporting the the fanzine when Skies Are Grey, the Everton fanzine. He was very significant in supporting their anti-racism campaign in the 1990s. And he's now gone on to become a really, really important advocate and ally for trans communities and sexual minorities and other other um, um, movements for for social justice. Um, I was very lucky to meet him once. Um, I've never been so nervous in my life. I've, you know, I've, I've stood up and lectured in front of uh, eminent colleagues and students and large audiences, but um, I was I was never quite as nervous as when I bumped into Neville Southall and had the chance to speak to him. So I would um, 
you know, invite those those three Evertonians who have been you know, key players, but also really important in our understanding of, of you know um, anti-racism and and social justice in the game. Mm. Brilliant. That would be a great little dinner party, I think. Thanks so much for coming on, Dan. Great speech to you. Best of luck with, with the book. And as I say, we'll put the links in, in this podcast description. That's it for this podcast. Uh, but please do share on social media if you can and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.